Welcome to Breaking Through with me, Kristen Rao Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We have a really great show for you once again this week. We start out talking about the U.S. Supreme Court's recent decision on the Indian Child Welfare Act and what it means. Then we dive into abortion care, access to abortion care, and what you can do to help restore that right. After that, we talk about what's happening with Moms Against Liberty, a hate group in America, how you can help fight back. And then we close the show talking about some recent victories that give us hope and fuel us to keep fighting, keep marching, keep working for the change that we all need. We're going to jump right in with our first guest. We are joined right now by an amazing, spectacular, wonderful guest who are going to love, love, love hearing from Manila Hool, who is a member of the Fond du Lac Band of the Lake Superior Chippewa. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Krista. Thank you. Um, I'm so glad you're joining us. What we're going to talk about today and what our members want to hear about is what's happening with the U.S. Supreme Court Indian Child Welfare Act decision. It was such a big deal, but hardly anybody knows about the big deal. What's the big deal? Oh, my gosh. The big deal is that it was upheld. Um, so the Indian Child Welfare Act, uh, you know, is been around since the 1970s and it was, you know, created. Congress acted in its in its obligations to tribal nations to protect native children. Um, what the Indian Child Welfare Act, and there's multiple provisions, we don't need to get into all of it today, but there's a couple monumental pieces to it. Um, but the biggest one for me, in my opinion, is the fact that tribes have the ability to intervene on behalf of their members. Meaning that when a Native American who is an enrolled member of a federally recognized tribe, um, which is a political identity, um, right? We have certain rights uh, is put into the child protective services that the tribe must be informed and that the tribe is a part of the decision-making process for their tribal citizen. That's what this case was about. Um, and what was really being argued in front of the court was opposite of what the law actually states. They were arguing that um, being Indian or Native American was a racial identity. Um, and that's what the court struck down. They said that's actually not the case. Um, so that's the quick, high level, why this was a big deal. Um, and it gets into a whole other various factors for uh, various tribal communities. And it's a huge deal because what is happening with our U.S. Supreme Court that this even had to be called into question in the first place? Can I just say it? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> uh, what, I, what I can say is, you know, gosh, this was decided 14 days ago. Um, I was on my, I was literally not even 14 years, two weeks ago, I was moving um, to a new city and I wasn't following the news. I've been engaged obviously through the process of the last year since this kind of got its, um, uh, what is it called? Like your rate where they're going to actually certify it. Right. And have been, you know, vocal advocating the importance of protecting ICWA having grown up in foster care myself. Um, but the court is leans right. We can't, you know, let's see what it is. And there were a lot of questions um, when certain justices were going through the um, confirmation process of what is your understanding of Indian law? And there were a lot of questions from advocates of are they going to understand what this is built on, what the like the Constitution, what the treaties are. And we didn't know. We, you know, let's think about what just happened with the Dobbs decision. Right. Like president has been time and time again in this court turned over. Um, but the beauty of what happened two weeks ago is this is the strongest 
decision we've ever seen affirming the Indian Child Welfare Act. Um, so it is absolutely, uh, in some ways, very mind-boggling, but also very affirming on how strong this law was written. And you brought something up when you were just talking right now that I think listeners and everyone should know more about is there's a lot of misinformation out there about the Indian Child Welfare Act and particularly about how it helps inform decisions around adoptions, foster care and care of native children. Can you share a little bit more about how that system works and why the Indian Child Welfare Act is so important to protecting native children, culture and history? All of the things are so important. And, and you know, sometimes we're like, how can a law help with that? How does this law help with that? Yeah. Um, you know, I can speak for myself. Um, so I when I was first placed into foster care, I was in foster care in three different points of my life. When I was a baby, I was actually placed with a family member. In third grade, I was placed with a native family. Where it was the first time I actually learned how to say something in my native language. Right? I got to learn how to say, hello, how are you? Buju, Anin, Right? I learned that because I was placed in a native home from my community. And then I went back home when I was replaced with my mother. And I was like, I didn't, you know, we don't really talk about this. And she was like, well, your grandmother went to boarding schools. And I learned so much. And that was a whole thing there. That's very important, right? Um, there's a cultural understanding where tribes say, we get to be a part of who we place you. Tribes can have their own list of like, these are the families um, engaged. Now, some misconceptions is you don't have to be placed in a home that is your same tribe, right? Um, but there's that conversation, that cultural thing that brings us together, not as individual tribes, but as a political identity, right? And that's what it was about. We are politically sovereign outside of like an American citizen. Um, and so we have that say, and that's really, really important. And for me, like, I, I remember when I really started going through dealing with trauma and all those things that children in care are dealing with. And I can't ever equivocate enough how important it was to know that I had not just a social worker, an entire tribe, literal tribe standing behind me to make sure I received the care that I needed um, to come out on the other end. Um, and that's so important to children. It's not just protecting our culture. It's protecting our children. Um, and that's that's why so many people will say the Indian Child Welfare Act is the gold standard for welfare. It is how do we wrap around services and uplift um, the kids that are going through um, the unimaginable. So important. And so many lessons to learn on so many levels. Also so important to keep in place. I always, when I hear about important legislation, have to ask the question, how can listeners help protect this, knowing that it's under attack from the courts, knowing that a lot of people are misinformed and even disinformed purposefully? What can people who are listening do to help in this area? Yeah, so there's a couple of things. Um, more and more states, individual states, are starting to introduce state-level legislation to, for lack of a better phrase, I'm not a lawyer, codify ICWA into their state laws. Um, in conservative states, there had been judges that had said, ICWA is a federal law, therefore we don't have to enforce it, right? But more and more states are realizing that if we're going to be engaging with tribes, we have to affirm that. So the folks listening, call your legislators, call your members, you know, and say, what are you doing to ensure that Native children um, are getting the 
political protections that they need when they are in care? That's an easy question. And I will say the answer will probably be the same answer that a lot of us have that don't work on ICWA. I don't know. Starting that process, though, is how, how you begin the conversation. Um, and then you're going to learn a lot about history. But that's how we start to build this country. That's how we make progress, right? Um, you have to start with that conversation. I think that's the first step. The excellent first step and leads, again, beautifully to the next question, which is about Native sovereignty and the history of our nation. So yeah. many people don't know about Native sovereignty in the history and present and future of our nation relating to Native sovereignty. And actually only think about it in the history books, which is not okay, right? We're talking about present and future too. And so there's a lot of cases in the court right now challenging future Native sovereignty, which is absolutely not okay. Why is it so critical to not only know about history, but engage in the present to protect Native sovereignty in the future? And how does that help everybody, including especially Native children? Yeah, I, I think, you know, sovereignty, there's so much to unpack there. Um, and I always whittle it down to this. Promises made, promises kept. When my ancestors signed treaties, they meant something. It was a promise that we were going to stop warring, that our identities and our communities were going to be held safe by the United States government. And there was a responsibility by the United States to ensure that Native people were respected and, 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 and held safe. We are in, in trust of the United States. We signed those. And what happened? The Borden Square, right? Children being ripped home from their families. All that. That's being challenged, right? The murdered and missing and indigenous peoples epidemic, right? These are things that are slowly creeping into mainstream media and being addressed on a, a high level scale. But people, the vast majority of Americans and many friends of mine, and I'm pretty native, uh, it's what I work on, don't understand just the historical complexities and why we're fighting for the future. Because there are, oh gosh, I can't, do not quote me on this, over 475, possibly 500 some odd, federally recognized tribes, right? They all have their own treaties that dictate what their rights are, what they can do, hunting, fishing, and gathering, the rights to the environment, pipeline issues. But that's our rights that we were promised by the United States government. And I don't know about you, I don't like going back on my word. Um, and that's what this is. This is any other country that the United States walks into a treaty with. What is that? And so when we see undermining of tribal sovereignty, that's my land, that's my community, that's my family on the line. Because we made, we made a home where we were told we should make a home and we were promised that we can make a home on. And that's really what's at stake with the future of tribal sovereignty. And I mean, it's just so important to not let the issue of tribal sovereignty into the future disappear. Where can people take action specifically in that area? As you mentioned, it's complicated. There's over 400 actual treaties. So, you know, if you're out there and you're like, wait, something is wrong. And everybody who's listening, we are in the moment of wait, something is wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, taking action to help protect tribal sovereignty is complicated. And I would love your advice. Yeah. I always tell people, first off, feeling like something is wrong is the first step, right? There's something wrong. Now take a deep breath. Take a deep breath because the threats and attacks will always come. Being from a marginalized community, this is we're not a stranger to this, whether you, whether it's gender or it's race or it's political identity, we, we are not strangers to this. Take a deep breath, 
and turn to experts. I'm not an expert when it comes to all those different laws, but there are organizations. Um, the, the largest uh, advocacy group in this country is the National Congress of American Indians. Look and see what they're working on. Look at the Native American Rights Fund. Look at what are those groups. And like, if those are pretty mainstream. There's other more progressive organizations like NDN Collective that's looking at how do we build wealth? How do we, the like, very radical change that we can as natives envision. Um, look at those organizations, NICWA, you know, when we're talking about NICWA, the National Indian Child Welfare Act Association, like they led the charge here and everyone wrapped together. Um, we often as Native Americans make the joke, if we were as organized now as when Christopher Columbus sailed across, what would today look like? You know, um, look to the leaders in the community um, and support their work. Um, and that's the best way to do it. It's just a they're going to tell you, like, here's what we're facing. They're going to, you know, give to them if you have the ability or take action. Like I said, you know, I really believe um, in the power of raising your voice, um, putting pen to paper. Uh, if you're in a news market that doesn't have a lot of natives, being like, this is impacts us here, too. Um, that's how you be an ally. And that's really important. That's so important. Thank you. We only have two minutes left. I'm wondering if you want to share any common myths that need to be busted immediately. <laughs> Absolutely. Native Americans, one, we're still alive. We're still here, right? We yeah. are not also, um, we're still here and we're fighting to be recognized as such. Um, we're fighting against racist mascots um, that, you know, depict us as these caricatures. We're not that. We're also, there's so many misconceptions of who we are. But with all the threats, let's also celebrate that we are still here. Uh, let's do that. Um, that's absolutely so important. I think the, the last thing that I would just leave with is when we put this back in the context of the importance of the Supreme Court upholding ICWA, the importance of that is our children. Everything that we do, whether it's the advocacy or in challenging all that, it's for not, not me, not my children, seven generations down the road. How do we want to see the world that they live in? And how do we navigate those conversations reflect on our vision? And I think that's really important. And that's why I was very excited to see last week, or two weeks ago, I should say, um, when this decision came out and uh, moving forward, how much people are paying attention now. Thank you so much for being on today. Thanks for all you do. Thanks for sharing your voice, your time, your vision. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Your advice on how to take action. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kristen, for having me. Um, it's been a pleasure, and thanks for all the work that you do. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. Next up, we're talking about abortion care and how we can help restore our right to reproductive health care in the United States of America and in every state in the United States of America. We'll be back in just a quick flash. Finer, powered by Moms Rising. We have such an important, awesome guest for you right now, Rachel O'Leary Carmona of the Women's March. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Hi. This is a happy, sad interview because I'm really happy to share with our listeners that there were marches in such a powerful, great, big way across the country. Uh, but for a very sad reason, the one year anniversary of the overturning of Roe v. Wade due to the Dobbs decision in the U.S. Supreme Court. Rachel, can you talk about the happy part, the power part first before we go into the sad part? What happened and why we had to march in the first place? Of course. I mean, so this weekend um, we had about 
well, we had at least one march per state. And then really um, amazingly, we had solidarity marches in other countries, uh, Colombia and Argentina, right off the top of my head. I was working with those folks directly. Um, and it, so I think the the happy part is that we have people power and that we continue to demonstrate that and that we are in the streets fighting for bodily autonomy, but also democracy. I mean, I think that we have to recognize now a year out that, you know, the attacks on abortion were an attack on democracy. And we've got a number of people who continue to step forward and say, I can, you know, I'm in this group of the willing. I'm going to continue to fight. I'm going to continue to push and we're going to continue to win. And the truth is, is over the last year, we have won. And we've won, of course, in the ballot initiatives that a lot of folks know about, but we've also just won in the court of public opinion. More people are in favor of abortion access and abortion rights now than a year ago at this time. And so what Dobbs has done in a in a you know kind of unexpected twist of fate is bring abortion rights to um an, an historic high um in our country, right? You know, f uh, support for abortion across the country and across the aisle. So that is the positive um and the silver lining. Yeah, I mean. Increased support, hugely positive silver lining, decreased access, bad. What's yes. happening because we don't have access to abortion care? What happened since Dobbs has <sighs> overturned Roe v. Wade? What has not happened is really the question. <laughs> I mean, there has been so much... Um, like just a lack of information and 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 like i think the biggest thing that that um folks struggle with is not really knowing what's happening there are so many people who are inside of states where there are bans where um they're not aware that they're bans um and that's really frightening so i think that what has happened is that First and foremost, like let, let's stop for, start from the bottom. People who need abortion access are having a harder time getting it, even in places where it is legal. And that is because folks from states where it is illegal or um, made so onerous that it is effectively illegal um, and effectively banned are now pouring across, you know, state lines in order to get the care that they need. Because what we do know, of course, is that, you know, whether abortion is legal or not, it doesn't stop the amount of people from, you know, having abortions, abortions are, are happening regardless. So, um, you know, there is that. And then there's been the confusion um, as a as a result of the Mifepristone cases as well, which are also other, um, you know, attempts to have de facto bans, um, you know, on abortion access. And then if you move up a little bit, I think that what has also happened is that people have a lack of faith and trust in institutions and institutions as a as a network form the you know bedrock of democracy and so i think that um you know people are really questioning w when and how change gets made and looking to you know state fights and looking to local folks and communities to make change because the way that we're thinking about that um you know is is very different you went right into what I was going to ask you next, which is when, how, where, all the things about will we make change? What should people who are listening be expecting? How can they lend a hand? How do you see change happening? I mean, I think I'm, I'm a... I guess I'm a, maybe, I don't know. I'm like, am I a minimalist or a maximalist? I kind of feel like both things are true. Like, I think that change can happen when people, I was actually just talking to somebody about this today and somebody said, well, we have to talk about democracy defense and we have to do it at the, you know, at the 30,000 foot level. I'm actually 
I don't believe anymore that we can defend democracy at the 30,000 foot level. <laughs> I think we do it at the granular level. And I think that we have to really like walk away from what are relatively, you know, patriarchal notions of like being a savior um, and, and being, being the, th that there will ever be one strategy that is going to swoop down and be the panacea for all of these things that are wrong. I think the reality is, is that there's going to be a number of things that are patchworked together from, you know, individual ballot initiatives, um, specific, you know, underground, you know, uh, communities that are moving um, access to pills, um, you know, that we know the great work that Plan C is doing to make, um, you know, uh, male abortion pills uh, mailed out to folks that are, you know, in places that are inaccessible. Um, we know that there will be um, federal legislation. We know that um, our friends with um, all above all and Ayanna Presley just introduced um, some federal legislation. And and so we know that that will continue to happen. And so I think that the truth of it is, is that everyone has to do everything um, that they can in order to fight for everything that we love because it's all on the line. And I know that that sounds very tiring. Um, and, you know, this weekend when I was talking, I was I quoted the 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 um, post office, you know, unofficial mottos like like neither rain nor heat, you know, nor snow, nor gloom of night will keep us from our, our appointed tasks. And um, in some ways, this feels like the gloom of night. Um, you know, it's 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 easy to fight when there's heat, when there's a big moment, when there's something happening. But when it's just the fight, when it's just the long, you know, kind of leg of the race, I think it's easy for folks to become discouraged. And I, what, else, what I'll say is that this weekend, people were not discouraged. They were defiant and they were ready to fight. And if so, if it's your turn to rest right now, I think go rest, go get what you need to do, spend some time with your family, rejuvenate, but then get back in the fight and get back in where you fit in, whether that is working on a school board race. I know mom has a lot of that going on if you know whether it's um you know working directly with an organization finding a political home whether it's helping people get access to abortion in your community i live in amarillo um texas and there's a group called um you know the amarillo aid access that that works to you know get folks what they need so i think um you really just need to get in where you fit in but the but the point is get in um make the I difference i love i love that i feel like we should have a whole t-shirt get in where you fit in now <laughs> you know we don't all have to do everything and that's the thing about making sure that we regain access to bodily autonomy to being able to decide if we're going to have children and if so when and how many in every single city and state in the united states of america no matter where you live you should be able to decide that we should not have forced birth in the united states of america in any city state or county or any place and it's going to take doing a lot of different tactics at the same time, at the federal level, at the city level, at the county level, and at the state level. But no single person needs to do everything. Fortunately, we can see from polling, we can see from the actual data on voters, um, we can see from a lot of different measures that the majority of people in the United States of America care very deeply about restoring bodily yes. autonomy. And so what that means is we have a giant movement. And if everybody picks one thing and um, just does what they can do, that one thing one time a week, we will make a difference. So if that one time a week thing that you do is call your member of Congress, whether they agree or disagree with you one time a week. And the reason why I say whether they agree or disagree with you is that even if your member of Congress agrees with you um, on restoring bodily autonomy, they need to know that you are the wind beneath their wings of change. They need to be able to talk yes. to other elected leaders who maybe aren't as 
inspired in their decision making, shall we call it, and say, hey, my constituents are pushing me to push you to restore bodily autonomy. So whether your member of Congress agrees or disagrees with you, you could call them once a week and say, when are you restoring our right to choice, you know, that can happen once a week. You could take action with any organization, Moms Rising, Women's March, NARAL, Planned Parenthood, any local organization in the way that they're opening avenues to take action once a week. There might be even more local groups near you. In fact, I'm sure there are even more local groups near many of you who are listening right now. And then there's also, as you said, contributing to the abortion care funds, if you can. Lots of different ways to take action. The most important thing here is never, ever, ever give up. It's going to be the power of persistence that lets us win. This is complicated. There's not going to be one bill or one moment that lets us win. We're going to need to win back the House and the Senate and the Oval Office in 2024 to inspire (laughs) new federal legislation like the EACH Act and Mm -hmm. other acts that we need there to win. But it's the never, ever give up for me. What about for you? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I'm both an eternal optimist and a human who likes a fight. So I really think that we can win. And I think that we can win um, a little bit. And I think we can win a lot. And I think that we just have to keep focusing on that. Um, and I think at the end of the day, you hit what you aim for. So if you keep aiming to win, you keep aiming for those, you know, those um, the, those little little benchmarks that get you along the way to your bigger wins. And I think, you know, our you know bodily autonomy um, and a feminist future is just a foregone conclusion. Um, and so that's that's what I do. That's what gets me up. I love it. So speaking of which. Um, what you do, what gets you up in the morning. We have about three minutes left and I would love it if you have a minute to just share with our listeners what's happening at the Women's March, just obviously in summary, but mostly how they can get involved with the Women's March. Yeah, so uh, the best place is always womensmarch.com to see what uh, what we have cooking up. The next thing that we have is we have just announced that um, our uh, convention for this year, October 20th through the 22nd in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And um, yeah, we're there to get prepared, get, you know, get our folks skilled up, um, make sure that we're all ready for the battles to come in 2024 and beyond. Um, Wisconsin was just the site of a of a, a pretty um, high stakes race in 2023 for the Supreme Court that was um, th- that will decide the, you know, the fate of abortion access, of course, and a number of other critically important issues in the state. So um, we are going to hover our mothership there um, and make sure that all is well in the world and really begin to um, get our um, base together and to build the biggest and the best we possible so that we're ready to, you know, with our, in our, with our, as our best selves in 2024, um, you know, because really everything that you said um, in the last few seconds is all on the line and we have to fight for it all. House, Senate, Oval Office, everything. <laughs> everything. We have to fight for everything. And that's the thing. Democracy is not a spectator sport. Like people are like, no. can we have this one and done thing where like we mm-hmm. win and then we don't, ever engage in democracy again. I'm like, no, it's actually set up for constant participation. So we need to set ourselves up, our mindset up for constant participation in democracy. Because when we take our hands off the wheels of democracy, when we aren't engaged and our voter engagement rates in the United States of America are some of the lowest of all democracies in the nation. When we take our hands off the wheels of democracy, we get things like anti-choice stuff happening, even though the majority (laughs) of people in the United States of America support choice. So everybody- 
be inspired that it's a joyful opportunity to stay engaged with democracy and also make sure we win the House, the Senate and the Oval Office. <laughs> Ooh, your mouth to the universe's ears. <laughs> I know. I know we do it. We know from polling. We just need everybody to actually go out and vote and maybe bring five or six or seven or eight friends with them to vote. Make voting <laughs> fun. Pick your voting walk up song right now. Get some sparkles, you know, sparkles. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Like, we were just talking about party. sparkles. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, get some sparkles. Make voting sparkly. That's what we should have like a whole campaign with Moms Rising and Women's March. <laughs> Sparkle your vote. <laughs> I that that. Fun? <laughs> I'm in. We're in. <laughs> I know. We need to sparkle our votes. I think we just made a new thing. Yes. Thank you so much for being on. Everybody, please join the Women's March. Get involved. Stay involved. Thank you so much for all of you. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for everything. Thank you for everything. Bye. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. Next up, we're talking about the moms against liberty, what's happening, and how you can lend a hand. We'll be back in a quick flash. Me, Kristen Ralph Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising and powered by superhero guests like the one we're bringing to you right now, Randy Weingarten of the AFT, American Federation of Teachers, a real, true superhero for our children, for families, for teachers, for our country. Welcome, Randy. Well, it is always an honor to be with you, Kristen. And so thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I am actually with my grandkids today. So it's like this is a this is a parenting, um, a, a, it's an amazing parenting day for me. <laughs> I love parenting days. Every day is a parenting day in some way, I got to tell you. I know our listeners know that and feel that too. So right now, we have a dire situation, a toxic situation with a group called Moms for Liberty. I like to call them Moms Against Liberty, who are speaking out against accurate history, against being able to be there for our families, against what polls show most people who are Democrats, Republicans, Independents, Green Party, any political party think is important in the United States of America. They are standing up for hate. They're having a convening and every single Republican candidate for president is taking time to come to their convening despite a long line of really atrocious policy statements and more that they are doing. What's your take about what every single listener should know about the moms against liberty? <laughs> so, you know, let me say three things about this. Number one, the moment you see the anti-vaxxers, including Robert Kennedy Jr., you see the um, anti-people, including people like DeSantis and Trump and DeVos, all converge in Philadelphia on a convention that they say is about substance when there's no substance there. You know that it's all political. And at the end of the day, what Moms for Liberty is, the Southern Poverty Law Center has called it an extremist organization. They had to apologize for having a Hitler quote after several hours of not wanting to apologize. 
they have been seen with the Oath Keepers. I mean, how much more evidence do you need to know that this is a divisive group? And so this is a matter of politics. And frankly, my sense about parents across America are that they need all of us. Of course, people get engaged in politics, but they need all of us to be working on what kids and communities need to succeed right now, bringing people together, addressing the problems right now, rather than continuing to spew hate and fear and division. And so it is, that's what we're doing. And I'm glad that there are groups that are, you know, speaking out against um, this this um, Moms for Liberty, because they're not a grassroots group. They're a political group and they're a political front group. But let me say one more thing, which is going to probably surprise all of your listeners, which is this. The underlying issue of the anxiety that parents have about kids being okay, that's real. And so what happens when you see these fear groups or these hate groups is that they are exploiting rather than trying to resolve and help that underlying anxiety. What you do in terms of Moms Rising is you're trying to help. What we're trying to do is trying to help. We're trying to help kids succeed. But I don't want to I don't, I don't want us to undermine or disparage that real issue about COVID as well as social media has really hurt the kind of mental health and well-being of kids. And we have to deal with all the learning loss issues and all the confidence issues going forward. I couldn't agree with you more. The Moms Against Liberty movement is a toxic, harmful embarrassment to moms in our country who are facing real crises, right? Exactly. We have real crises. We exactly. have real crises and we know how to solve those real crises. Yep. So to go to your uh, political point that this is a movement with a capital P political, this isn't a grassroots movement. This is a movement that is trying to get away with something. When Donald Trump first lost a little moment of history here, the White House Steve Bannon, his lead strategist, who um, has made a lot of hateful comments himself, said the way back to the White House is through the school boards. Now, what they're talking about there is the 76 million mom voters in America that are very powerful, often overlooked voters, and looking at ways to divide those voters by utilizing hateful wedge issues to kind of push people against each other. That's about capital P political. That's not about solutions, right? And that's sort of the nexus of where this Moms Against Liberty was born. In the face of that, as you said, there are very real crises facing exactly. the moms, the dads, the parents, the caregivers of America, and we know the solutions. And this is what it's also important for the listeners to hear. Not only do we know the solutions, we've seen time and time again, Democratic leaders trying to push those solutions through time and time again. The Biden Build Back Better package, looking at the leadership in the Democratic Senate leadership, the Democratic House leadership, all trying to push through those solutions and all being blocked by Republican extremists. So right. this is so frustrating.
exciting to me because I'm like, you know, it's like sometimes you can have a problem and not know what the solution is. But the very same people, Republican extremists who are spreading that hate and division and funding the Moms Against Liberty are the same people who are standing in the way of solutions for real families that, by the way, also help businesses and our economy. I'm so frustrated. What should everybody do? But this is what. So, look, this is what they want. They want people to be. Uh, to feel so dispirited and say, oh, it's a pox on all your houses. Oh, no one has a solution. No one is helping me. And and so that's part of the reason why I talk about it as smears and solutions. That's why smear, 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 divide, 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 bully, 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 so that people are so exhausted, they don't even, they give up before you get to solutions. So look, there are things we know we need to do right now. Number one, kids need to feel hope. And yep. they need to have a build back of confidence. And, and, and that is relational. That's about trust. That's about programs that are joyful. That's about programs that are interesting. So that's why... You know, when if we talk about how to address learning loss, the number one thing we can do to address learning loss is have really cool, great programs in schools and in summer that kids want to be engaged in themselves and together with others. That's why I'm like totally into experiential learning and hands-on learning. That's number one. Number two we have to do things like social emotional learning. So look at what New York City is doing. They're, you know, they're gonna start doing breathing exercises. We, one of the things we have to do is kids have to feel okay about themselves. And all those algorithms and all that social media stuff, it's all about creating chaos and deregulation and anxiety. So we have to get a sense of well-being again, a sense of we're okay again. And so if we focus on these kind of simple things of having cool programs in schools that kids say, like your kid would say, I want to go to school today. I want to be in that music class. I want to do that project. That's really important. And that's what, what we have to center schools around this coming year. And the second is well-being. And then where we have issues around literacy, we need to have a huge campaign about reading and literacy, whether it's numeracy, whether it's financial literacy, whether it's simply learning to read by third grade and then reading to learn afterwards. So if this sounds like a back to the basics thing, it may be to other people, but I have seen programs around the country that do this and where kids spark to it and they feel better about it. So community schools, experiential learning, um, real literacy programs, um, and, and, and those kind of things will turn things around for kids. And we turn things around for kids, that means we're turning things around for families. And for teachers. And I just wanna oh put in God, a note totally. here that you know what the Moms Against Liberty are doing, we can see bringing that hate into schools, into the school boards, into communities is pushing teachers out 
We need teachers more than ever. We need teachers more than ever who can be there for the kids through the social emotional learning, through the fun reading and then uh, reading to learn through all of that. And to get the teachers there, we need to get the hate out. And you well, didn't that's, talk about that. I wanted to just give you a moment. As the you. American Federation for Teachers, I have a lot of friends who are teachers. Like it is because, hard being a teacher right now in this climate. Because think about the several things they do at the same time. Look at DeSantis. At the same time as he is funding and promoting, because where did this start? It started with a person who lost her school board race. She lost her school board race and she started this group. And this group started as bullying LGBT kids, as um, raising cane about teaching honest history, banning books. But what they also did with DeSantis is they said, and the teachers shouldn't have a voice anymore. So the laws that they passed in um, Florida are attempting to stop the teachers from having a voice and to defund public schools. So what you see with these groups is that they don't want a school system that works for all kids. They don't want teachers to have a voice and they just wanna scare everybody to death. That is not democracy and that is a fear of the future. So it's, you know, it's like it, the teachers are, you know, are, are, are in a position that they understand they're under attack in Florida and other places and this is what's amazing about teachers. I know some of them are leaving. What's amazing about teachers is they wanna make a difference in the lives of kids. And they are joining together like never before. We have 5,000 more members in Florida today than we did last year because they understand that community is really important. Community with parents like, like Moms Rising and community with each other. And they wanna make a difference in the lives of kids regardless of this kind of demonic demonization. We only have about two minutes left. I wanna share a little bit of hope alongside you, along with you saying you have 5,000 additional members in Florida of teachers. We also are getting additional members in Florida because people, parents are appalled at what's happening. And the little bit of hope is that where we've been able to deeply engage head to head with the Moms Against Liberty, we have won. And so, when we come together and we raise our voices together, these fights are winnable for our kids, for our teachers, for our communities. And when there was an analysis done about the 2022 midterm elections at the school boards, that found out that the majority of these atrocious candidates actually lost. And so this is something, if you're listening, it's hard to get engaged when people are being mean, bullying, talking about bans, Hitler censorship. These people are not nice. So it's hard to get involved. But when we know that many of us agree, many more of us agree that with the power of good, the power of hope, the power of teaching students accurate information of inclusion, many more of us agree on that than disagree. That power coming together is victorious and will continue to be victorious. So in the couple minutes left, what's your advice to everybody who's listening? What should they do? Definitely support your teachers. Definitely support children and families. What else? So if you have a minute of time, get involved in a group that supports our children, our educators, and the future of public education. Don't do it alone. Get involved in Moms Rising. 
get involved in red wine and blue, get involved in parents together, get involved in a PTA. We need you because we know that when we are together fighting to strengthen and protect our kids' lives and their outcomes in schools, we will win. 80% of people, when we ask people, when we ask the public right after the 2022 election, do you want more private choices in schools or do you want to strengthen public education? By 80 to 20, people want to strengthen public education. People in America want a future and want our kids to have a future. Get involved to help that happen. And you will see, like uh, Kristen said, we will win these issues. And you're not alone. Yeah. That's the big message. There's hope. You're not alone. Thank you so much for being on, Randy. True superhero. I told you, Listars, true superhero. Thank you for all you do. Hope to have you back soon. And thank you for your leadership. Thank you so much. We're going to take a break, but don't go away. Next up, we're talking about hope, some victories, and how we can make a difference together moving forward. We'll be back in just a quick moment. We're going to fight for love. Breaking through with me, Kristen Ralph Finer, powered by Moms Rising. We have a wonderful, amazing, spectacular, nation-changing, and nation-lifting guest for you today. You're going to love hearing Tina Sherman of Moms Rising. Welcome, 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 Tina. Thank you, Kristen. Happy to be here. I'm happier that you're here because you have some topics to share. We are often talking about the importance of hope, of having hope, and being able to believe that change can happen is such a critical part of making that change actually happen because there's yeah. no sort of path to having the persistence that it takes to get any kind of change without hope. So you are here today sharing some big, 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 big hope um, by the way of some victories that you just helped celebrate at the White House, as in the White House where President Biden does his work and lives. So yes. that's a big deal. Yes. Oh, my goodness. So excited. This past week, the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act was just um, enacted. It goes and it went into effect just this past week. So as our listeners are tuning in, it is in effect. And what does the Pregnant Workers Act, uh, Act do? Yes, wait, take a moment to celebrate. Absolutely. Woo! Because it, it is, was a long, hard fought battle. And believe it or not, women and pregnant people across the country did not have the basic rights to maintain a healthy pregnancy prior to this um, um, law being, uh, bill being signed into law at the end of last year and going into effect just this past week. So whether it is um, a stool to sit on, um, a bottle of water to walk around with, changing your uniform, gosh, could you imagine like not being able to change your uniform and having a really tight uniform around a growing belly? Um, just small things like that um, that were not possible before are possible now. Um, if it is something that is required um, from your doctor to maintain a healthy pregnancy, it is now possible and protected under federal law. Um, employers of all sizes 
are required to um, to provide these accommodations. Um, so we are incredibly excited um, about the fact that this has just gone, um, has just been enacted. It is enforced um, by the EEOC, the Equal Equal Employment Opportunity uh, Commission, and excited um, about that. We are also excited about the Pump for Nursing Mothers Act, which is what we also celebrated at the White House. It has actually been signed into law along at the end of last year, along with pregnant workers, and has actually been enacted um, since it was signed into law back in December. Um, but also recently, the enforcement mechanism has recently kicked in. And what that allows for is lactating people, moms, and um, lactating folks, the um, opportunity to have the time and space to express breast milk, so to pump breast milk. Um, critically important, we know that both of these um, bills uh, are long, long overdue. Both of these laws were long overdue. Um, we know that um, many, uh, the inability to, to express breast milk was one of the really key pieces of why many um, lacked, uh, many birthing people um, did not even look to breastfeeding or lactating um, as an opportunity to, to offer their um, their infants um, human milk. Um, because we know that one in four moms, we're going to be still working on this, one in four moms return a week within, two, with return to work within two weeks of giving birth. Um, and so if we don't have access to the ability, the ability to um, pump, then, you know, how are we going to continue that breastfeeding relationship? How, how do we even start that breastfeeding relationship? So from lactating to healthy pregnancies, um, I've been calling them life-changing, life-changing um, new rights that um, are offered um, for all workers across the country. Life-changing victories. You know, I think it's so important to talk a little bit more, and I know you know this, Tina, about what's happening with moms and parents and birthing people in America and why this is so important. Like, what's the context? Well, the context is right now in the United States of America, being a mom is a greater predictor of wage and hiring discrimination than gender. And because of structural racism, moms of color are experiencing compounded wage and hiring discrimination to the extent that Latina moms are earning just 47 cents to a white dad's dollar and black moms just 54 cents to a white dad's dollar. This is not okay. Not, not okay. okay. Stand for this. It's ridiculous. We also know, I'm talking about the problem part, that in the United States of America, we've had dramatic increases in maternal mortality with black women dying three times as often as white women in childbirth. Also not okay. This is all not okay. So we need to come together for solutions. And it turns out when you look at studies about solutions, there's no one policy solution that's gonna fix it all. It's a combination of policy solutions, including things like the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, including things like the Pump for Nursing Mothers Act, that's gonna get us toward those solutions of decreasing yes. those wage gaps, decreasing that discrimination and increasing maternal and infant health. We also need, and we're still fighting, um, access to affordable, high-quality childcare for everyone, access to fair pay for all care workers, access to paid family medical leave for all people, especially after you give birth, um, access to uh, also uh, the child tax credit. And 
healthcare yes. that's equitable. Yes. So we have a long way to go, people, to solve the maternal crisis in America. But these are two major steps on that long way. And they Absolutely. need to be celebrated not only for their own individual wins, which they are huge wins individually, each of those bills, the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act and the Pump for Nursing Mothers Act are huge wins. They bring huge wins for millions of people. So we need to celebrate them not only for the wins that they bring for millions of people in their specific ways, but also for the momentum that they're pushing towards lowering those wage gaps and saving those lives. And I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about that bigger context with our listeners too. I think the saving lives portion um, is just is just the key. When we talk about, again, the barriers um, that women of color face, um, and we, we talk about um, the fact that we know that 80% of maternal deaths are preventable. Um, we know that access to healthcare is, is one of those key pieces. But we know that when a doctor, um, a healthcare provider um, says that a mom needs to lift less or maybe stay off of her feet more, um, we know that these are um, issues that can help save baby and also help save mom. Um, and so critical, critical pieces, um, again, life-changing, life-saving. Um, and I'm so grateful um, to have been able to work alongside all of our members to, to ensure that their stories have been lifted up um, as, as a part of getting these bills passed. And, and you mentioned something really important about stories. So the members of Moms Rising have stories. We all have stories, birthing stories that were ways that we were helped by policies or not helped all of the gamut of stories are helpful in illuminating what's happening in the united states of america to leaders with the ability to make the changes we need can you talk a little bit about the power of stories a lot of people don't realize the full tremendous weighty power of our stories of us sharing about our lives yes so you know when i think about members of congress they don't all look like us <laughs> um oh, and so <laughs> most don't. I was being cautious there, but yes, most most do not. We we need more members of Congress that look like us. But until then, um, we absolutely have to continue to share what our experiences are, living in our bodies and our towns and our cities, um, and sharing what it is like to to be a parent, what it is like to um, to be a part of a family, trying to uh, trying to raise our families um, in um, in this country, and what that looks like. And so, um, I'm grateful that we can do that at Moms Rising um, and and collect our member stories and 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 take them to Capitol Hill. And I'll, I'll share as a part of being at the White House. Um, we had one of our members um, speak um, and share her story about, um, again, a decade ago that she shared her story of, um, of being able to, uh, of not being able to pump in the workplace um, and what a challenge that was for her and the horrible, nasty comments that she received from her coworkers and her boss um, who just said, oh, no, your coworkers are just joking. Um, and, you know, really... Um, it is stories like that because our members of Congress don't know what it's like. Um, so it's it's it is really those stories um, that help move the needle and really to help illuminate what real families are going through. What you're raising is so critically important, Tina. It's um, our stories educate leaders about what's really happening 
Um, we don't yet have political parity in the United States of America, as you mentioned. In fact, I happen to know we rank about 95th of all countries in terms of political parity. There are 94 countries. 95th? Yes. <laughs> We're not doing that. well here. We can do better in political parity. Um, and uh, it also educates members of the media and also lets us each know we're not alone. You know, yeah. it's so important to know that we're in a national crisis about motherhood and having children and letting us know we're not alone. Each of us know we're not alone helps build that movement for change. What's next? What should people be doing? We're celebrating these victories for sure, for sure, for sure. Building yes. that hope for sure, for sure, for sure. Filling up our battery to keep going forward, knowing that our voices, our stories make a difference. What should people do after they fill up their battery of knowing we can make a difference and hope? Well, we absolutely have to educate about these new rights. So first and foremost, tell your friends, tell your sisters, tell your aunties, tell your brothers, tell your uncles, tell everyone you know about Pregnant Workers Fairness Act and the Pump for Nursing Mothers Act. Let pregnant and expecting people, um, expectant families in your life know that, um, that these are new uh, protections um, that they need to be aware of. And as we take this moment to celebrate, I'm gonna continue celebrating and we need to continue celebrating and educating but we still have much, much more to fight for. Um, you know, again, going back to access to affordable quality childcare, access to paid family and medical leave. So take this moment to celebrate and know that our work is not done, but refill your cup, have some coffee and, um, and um, get ready for the, for the next fight because um, our families need us. Our families absolutely need us. And, um, you know, it's the 4th of July coming up. Lots of people will be celebrating. It might be a moment because our new tradition to have kind of a commitment to ourselves to maybe call a member of Congress once a week or once a month. And, I love that. Say, you know, like, hey, I believe in a participatory democracy. If I'm going to watch the fireworks, I'm going to be part of the fireworks year round. <laughs> yes, I love that. <laughs> Let's, you know, commit to calling our member of Congress and say, keep fighting for building a care infrastructure, for building maternal justice, for building equitable access to health care. Hello, we need this, not just for our families, but for our communities, our country, and our economy. So let's do this, people. What do you think, Tina? Absolutely. I love that. Commit to calling your member of Congress once a week. I love that. We need yes. to be on a first name basis. Yes. For sure. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much for all you do. Thank you for bringing us hope. Thank you for moving change. Thank you for your leadership. And thank you for being here today. Thanks, Kristen. Well, that's it for our show today. Thanks so much for tuning in as we tackle the top topics facing our nation in the ways that requires the most boring disclaimer in the history of the planet Earth. Here goes. Views expressed on this show are those of the individual speakers and should not be attributed to Moms Rising to this station or to any news or social media service that may disseminate a recording of this show to the public or to any segment of the public. Boom. We'll catch you next week. We're going to fight for love.